I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. COVID-19 has pulled down stadium shutters, postponing and even cancelling events around the globe. In this edition of the Agenda podcast, we look across the sporting world and speak to some of its biggest players to ask how they're taking on their toughest opponent yet. Today we'll be talking to Simon Chadwick, Professor at the Centre for the Eurasian Sport Industry, about how COVID-19 has damaged sport in Europe. We'll also talk to Emily Scarrett, England Rugby International, about being a professional sports person during these uncertain times. But first, we talk to Sebastian Coe, President of World Athletics, about why postponing the Olympics was the right call and how administrators have had to adapt to an unprecedented crisis. What's been the impact for you personally of having an event like the Olympics postponed, possibly even cancelled? Uh, well, it's been, it's been challenging. Uh, we had to accept that. Uh, and sometimes we know... Uh, even for those of us who love sport and believe sport is the great driver for social change, uh, we also know that occasionally sport has to take a back seat. And the decision that was made to postpone the Games was the right one. It removed the athletes from their emotional turmoil, that roller coaster, that wasn't just about themselves, but also about the fear that they could, by training through this, uh, infect their own families and their loved ones. Uh, and then, of course, once the Games had been uh, postponed and moved to the following year, 20 to 21, we then had the massive challenge of being able to choreograph a World Athletics Championships, a Commonwealth Games and a European Championships, not just in the same year, uh, but all within seven, six or seven weeks of each other. So, yes, it, it's, had, it, it's had its moments. What about the athletes themselves? I mean, they are, have been on strict training schedules for some time, I'm guessing, but they're all training to peak uh, in, in Tokyo. So th it must be a tremendously difficult task for them ahead to train and for another year and peak then. Yes, it is. Um, and look, uh, the reason that we made that decision was really in concert with the athletes. I speak to the athletes all the time uh, through our Athletes Commission. Uh, and they were very clear uh, that, yes, of course, they wanted to compete, but they wanted to compete in a way that didn't call into question the integrity of the competition. And we knew that you know, there were some athletes that were entirely in lockdown, barely able to leave even their front door to train. Uh, there were others who were probably, sadly, only just entering uh, the pandemic challenges in their own countries. And there were some that were actually on their way out uh, of those pandemic problems. So, yes, we needed to bring them back into competition uh, at exactly uh, the same time. But look, there are two things I think you have to remember. Um, this, this technology, this way of life, the, the, the fact that we're all working remotely may be alien to us. It's certainly not an alien way of life to the athletes. The athletes, if they've spent probably half their young lives getting to the point where even with the disappointment, a Games gets, uh, a games gets postponed, they've learned for probably a decade beforehand to work remotely with technology, with coaches uh, that are not always at every training session and certainly not at every race, maybe watching those competitions, those training sessions eight hours away 
eight time zones away uh, on technology. So it, it's really important to remember that. And it's also important to remember, look, that yes, some sadly probably will not make it uh, to uh, the games because they've been delayed a year through age or through the ever present curse and risk of, of injury. But actually most will. And those that have got smart coaches that are able to regroup and athletes are very resilient. They do bounce back from uh, from failures. That's the, that's the landscape that all athletes work within. So my instinct is most of them will be there. Some sadly won't. COVID-19 has had a huge impact. No sport has been spared and it'll be some time yet until the full extent of the financial damage becomes clear. To learn more about this, I spoke to Simon Chadwick, professor at the Centre for the Eurasian Sport Industry. Uh, professor, what's been the financial impact of COVID-19 globally? There are many estimates, uh, often running into to billions of pounds, billions of dollars. Uh, but my view would be is, is that the impact has been almost incalculable. Much of the attention across the world has been focused on, for example, the English Premier League, on Formula One, on the Olympics. And yet global sport is much, much more than that. There are events taking place at lots of different levels, from the elite professional level through to grassroots level, across numerous sports. You have suppliers, the likes of uh, organizations, businesses supplying uh, merchandise, equipment, um, you know, things like turf, uh, football boots, and so the the impact has been so wide, uh, so profound. I think that even figures like four billion dollars, five billion dollars, which I've seen over the course of the last week, are probably really underestimating the actual situation. You've worked extensively in China. How long before stadiums are open there? Do you think? We had a little bit of a false dawn in, in China uh, two or three weeks ago when it was beginning to look like professional sport might start again. There had already been a, an announcement that people could congregate in public and, and go to, for example, parks and, and kick a ball around. So there, there were positive signs. And, and then very suddenly, uh, China shut its borders to, to people from overseas. Um, and we saw that, for instance, basketball in China, rather than getting restarted, was postponed once again. And so for a long time, I've really been looking eastwards to China as a, as a, as a signal for what might come in Europe um, seven, eight, nine weeks later. But at the moment, I'm not seeing any promising signs coming out of China. And, and so for, for people across Europe who anticipate the restarting of sports uh, at some stage over the next three or four weeks, I, I think that's very premature based on the Chinese experience. What about playing games uh, behind closed doors? Is that financially viable as people are trying to close out seasons, aren't they? I've recently been talking to one of the world's biggest football clubs and they are adamant that they want to stage games behind closed doors and get the season finished. Uh, this is really important for them in terms of fulfilling contracts with, with sponsors, with broadcasters. It would be an important source of revenue for them. Um, for many of these big organizations, for these big clubs, for these big sports, they're drawing large revenues from broadcasters rather than from ticket sales. And so they, they can go ahead. Longer term, it becomes more problematic, I think, because it fundamentally changes the nature of the game. Crowds are, are intrinsic to the sport product, so they create noise and atmosphere and tension. 
and we've therefore got to be cautious about seeing playing uh, playing sports behind closed doors as, as being the future. There are some interesting uh, developments, or there have been some interesting developments in, in recent weeks. So, for instance, uh, driving football where where you can drive outside a football stadium and, and the game being played um, in the stadium is then broadcast on, on big screens. But as I say, that fundamentally changes why we go to watch sport. And, and so, therefore, I, I think, again, we've got to reserve judgment about what happens in the future. Uh, driving football, driving sport, playing behind closed doors, these kinds of development will help us get through the short term, but I'm not sure they're necessarily the long-term future of sport. Is there an upside to any of this, uh, Simon? I'm thinking perhaps this is a chance for the administrators, the, the sponsors, uh, the clubs uh, themselves to stand back and look at the game anew, how it's administered, how it's run, but, you know, sort of uh, the actual way the games are played. I guess in existential terms, in policy terms, in governance terms, we're at a, a very interesting point in the history of sport. And that is simply, from here on in, what do we want sport to be like? Uh, a lot of people have been very critical of the way in which commercial sport, global sport, has developed over the last two decades. And numbers of people sense an opportunity to, to reset to, to a time in the past. I don't necessarily think we're going back to the past, but I think what we can all do is begin to look towards the future and think about what the shape of world sport should look like. And then I, I guess for, for all of us, academics, for, for policymakers, politicians, people working in sport, directors of clubs, event managers and so forth, we, we have to begin to express our views and, and begin to shape the agenda for the period during which the virus eventually begins to dissipate. Many athletes have been preparing for years for the events that have been cancelled this year. And while the missed income will hurt, it's also important for athletes to stay fit and stay in peak physical condition for when sport eventually resumes. I spoke to England Rugby International and Global Player of the Year, Emily Scarrett, about how she's been keeping fit and coping with the absence of her sport during the pandemic. As, as someone who was named World Rugby Player of the Year just a few months ago, what's been the impact of the lockdown on you? Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? Obviously, you know, we play a team sport, so you're used to constantly being surrounded by your teammates, other people, um, which obviously isn't able to happen now. So it's it's kind of getting that motivation right to, to train by yourself, um, to do what you can, obviously, um, without physically playing rugby because that's very difficult without other people but um, just trying to stay on top of your training um, find other things to do like everybody um, and just try and keep busy in this time and how are you managing that i mean you are fortunate in that you do have a family farm so there must be a lot of uh, should we say heavy lifting to be done that might help with your training yeah, exactly that. Um, everybody still needs to eat, don't they? So, so farmers are, are cracking on relatively as normal. It's quite an isolated life in itself. So, yeah, I've been able to, to help out help out dad and my brother, which has been really nice, actually, because often you don't, don't get the time to be able to do that. Um, and I've also built a gym up in one of the sheds, um, kind of hay bales as my squat rack and kind of very stereotypical farmer. But, um, yeah, that's obviously been great for me um, to be able to kind of continue to train relatively as normal, obviously, without the rugby side of stuff. Now, one way uh, the administrators of the game um, are suggesting the way forward is to play games behind closed doors because, obviously, of the social distancing. And you've already done that once, haven't you? What was it like? 
Yeah, it, it was a weird one, obviously. So this Six Nations, we um, our game got cancelled because of the storms that were going on back in February time, I think. So we had a game behind closed doors at Murrayfield um, against Scotland, which, yeah, it's a strange one. Um, obviously, you don't get the, the kind of support of the crowd and the noise. Um, but obviously, at that point, that game needed to be played. So it was definitely the best thing to happen. Um, I think as a, as a sports person, you want to play in front of people, you know, you want that either that home support or the away support behind you or kind of against you a little bit, which is, you know, really kind of changes the momentum often of, of games. So, um, yeah, it's a strange one. But at the same time, if it means that games get played, then I guess there's, there's a balance to be met somewhere there. What impact is this hiatus going to have on the game, do you think, Emily? Because the women's rugby game had been on a very upward curve, hadn't it, in terms of popularity and perhaps, more importantly, recognition as well. Will this damage that, that recognition? Uh, I hope not. Um, obviously, you know, we weren't able to finish the Six Nations, but we'd, we'd completed kind of four of the five games. Um, and obviously then we were going back to club rugby. So in terms of international rugby, it's not like we've missed a huge amount. So hopefully that momentum, well, fingers crossed, when we're able to get back playing, we'll be able to, to kind of pick that up straight away. And obviously the appetite for people wanting to go out and watch sport who've been sat inside and kind of um, deprived of that for so long, hopefully will be, be even higher. So it could have the opposite effect if anything but um yeah i think you know it's really important to keep that keep that momentum going you know a lot of the girls have been really active on social media sharing what they're doing showing you know different skills or physical activities that you know other people can get involved in so hopefully that will keep us connected with with the people out there that are supporting us what impact do you think this could have financially on the game i'm thinking more perhaps towards the grassroots level uh, of the game um, because there is money around for the, at international level, but not necessarily at club level. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. I think, you know, for all sports around the country and, you know, different governing bodies, they're kind of almost waiting to see, one, how long this goes on for it, and two, I guess, then the impact of it. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely going to have an impact. Um, the size of that and the scale of that, I suppose, is yet to be seen a little bit. But, um, you know, rugby is a, a really traditional and prominent sport within our country, and, you know, people will get back out there playing as soon as they possibly can, I'm sure. And, um, you know, the community of which rugby is, is is one that rallies around each other all of the time. So, and it's, you know, it's a positive place to be. So, you know, hopefully um, it will be, you know, something that, that can kind of pick up where it left off a little bit. Um, yeah, hopefully. That brings us to the end of another edition of The Agenda. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. The Agenda with Stephen Cole airs every Saturday and Sunday on CGTN. You can also find more content like this on our website and across CGTN, Europe's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project, 
Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.